Imagine yourself at a funeral for a revered and beloved member of your community. You're seated in the church, not far behind the family members. And as the pastor reads Psalm 23, you know the one, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, you can see people crying in the pews around you. This funeral, this ritual, is a serious affair, yet there's gentle laughter as the pastor in his remarks tells a heartwarming story about the deceased. And family members, several of them, share stories of their own, each focusing on admirable qualities or vignettes that speak to a value, a value of family or maybe to the good character of the deceased, aspects of his character that are respected by all. So it's a beautiful service. Then you become aware of a commotion at the back of the sanctuary. The ne'er-do-well 20-something granddaughter who's known to have some problems has arrived late and she's wearing an Angry Birds t-shirt and jeans and flip-flops. She is obviously drunk and is singing somewhere over the rainbow at the top of her lungs and out of tune. And there's a brief interruption as she is half convinced, half forced to leave. And the people around you are clearly either disgusted or horrified or saddened by the interruption. So, what has happened here? Well, a funeral is a ritual, and it's a kind of ritual where there's a very strong expectation of reverence and respectfulness. And this can be displayed in some very different ways, actually. Uh, the expression of respect can be surprising to the uninitiated or to strangers at some kinds of funerals, jazz funerals, for instance, which can be very loud. And there are even funerals where everyone is expected to show up in a superhero costume. But, of course, that would be to show respect to the interests, the preferences, the hobby of the deceased, right? I mean, if the deceased was into comic books, this would make sense. But if people arrived in costumes to make fun of the deceased, we could say that that's not really a funeral even. It, that would involve some definitional things. We might have to redefine that as a kind of revenge ceremony or something like that. No, there is a way to act at a funeral. We can get philosophical about it. We can entertain all kinds of weird possibilities. But when it comes right down to it, there is a way to act. And we know this. And it involves respect. So, of course, it involves benevolence. No wonder there are so many references to funerals throughout the Analects, and it's in the Mencius, and Schunzer writes about it. It's in pretty much all the Confucian texts. Hi, I'm Andy Abel, and welcome to the Confucian Podcast. This is Episode 7. 
I'm so glad to have you listening. Please be in touch. You can reach me at confucianpodcast at gmail.com. That's confucianpodcast, all one word, at gmail.com. Let's get right into our passage from the Analects this time. I'll go with the first verse of chapter 3. Kongzu wei ji shi ba yi wu yu ting shi ke ren ye shu bu ke ren ye Confucius spoke of the Ji family, eight rows of dancers in the courtyard. If this can be endured, what cannot be endured? And that's it. That's the passage. Uh, I'm sure it seems a little weird to you. It probably seems obscure, and I'll talk about that. I actually want to come back to this passage at the end of the episode. I hope that by then it will make more sense to you. In case you're wondering why I didn't follow up the opening story with one of the many passages about funerals in the Analects, there is actually a connection. I'll just say that some of the most interesting things we've learned about the China of Confucius's day have come to us through the study of funerals, and that's partially because funerary practices are revealed in tombs. So we have great evidence. And um, so that evidence is actually going to help us understand this seemingly odd statement by Confucius. So bear with me. It all ties together. But let's dig into this intellect a bit. Confucius spoke of the G family, eight rows of dancers in the courtyard. If this can be endured, what cannot be endured? So, okay, first you need to know that the G family was one of the infamous three families, as they're called, the three families that had stolen power from the legitimate Joe ruler, uh, whose position was weak at that time. So the three families were more powerful and they had essentially taken over, keeping the king on as a puppet. And the problem was, uh, for Confucius, was that they were not adhering to the system, the, the Joe ritual system, of status markers that was so important to Confucius. Edward Slingerland, um, Slingerland, I should mention him because his translation of the Analects is the best recommended for people new to realism. Edward Slingerland, uh, and it's especially because he includes commentary. So anyway, uh, Slingerland glosses this one perfectly. He writes, quote, although he was the de facto ruler of Lu, the head of the G family officially held only the position of minister. And his use of eight dancers, or eight rows of dancers, thus represented an outrageous usurpation of the ritual prerogatives of the Joe King, end quote. And that is exactly it. Again, if you're new to the Analects, I do recommend these Slingerland translations because you have explanations like this. But so anyway, okay. Uh, Confucius is upset that the G family is putting on airs. Which, I, I don't know, could, I mean, I imagine that sounds priggish to you. Uh, Mr. G is actually the man in charge. He's the person actually doing things. So he needs to be able to entertain people, right? He's got to put on a show as part of how he'll be able to network, to win friends, and therefore, you know, through that to rule the state. Right, so let's cut him some slack. If he wants eight rows of dancers in his courtyard, I mean, come on, what's the big deal? 
And uh, so unless you know what is going on here, Confucius appears in this passage to be kind of a moral fuddy-duddy, someone getting all worked up about trivial details. But that is not the case. And to see why, and to see how all of this has to do with benevolence, we need to, to consider the evidence from Chinese funerals. We need to consider the evidence from texts like the Analects, but we also need to consider the harder evidence, the solid evidence that been, that's been dug up, literally, and mostly quite recently um, in Chinese tombs. And we actually know more about the funerary practices of ancient China than anything else about ancient China. And it's from opening all these tombs up. And tombs are a really big thing in China, by the way. There are TV shows and movies about tomb raiders, for instance. They're really fun. It's kind of like Indiana Jones movies. And the heroes have these goofy sidekicks who make funny faces when the ghosts and demons pop out. And there's always a smart, pretty girl to fall for the hero and this kind of thing. Uh, I watched Candle in the Tomb. You can find it on uh, online for free. And it's goofy. It's silly stuff, ridiculously far off from real Chinese culture and heritage. Okay, but it's, it's, it's fun stuff. It's recommended. And anyway, it will give you a sense of this uh, Chinese interest these days with tombs. So we've got lots of tomb archaeology coming out of China. And so we know quite a bit about the Shang and the Zhou uh, dynasty cultures and, and this kind of thing. So uh, it'd be nice if they were doing more studies of other things than the tombs, but that's what we've got these days. So anyway, uh, in the old days, uh, it was known in the ancient world that life continued after death. And it was known that you could take things with you. So you were buried with funerary objects that you could use in the next world. And that included sometimes servants and concubines who might be sacrificed and buried alongside some bigwig. And actually, this happened up through Confucius's time, which is, uh, let's face it, outrageous. It's a scandal, actually. And, you know, why wasn't there more outrage among the Ruists, among the masters of ritual? This was their thing, right? Burials, uh, ritual, funerals, all this kind of stuff. So why isn't there in the Analects, uh, for instance, whole chapters filled with scathing comments denouncing, denouncing this kind of um, waste of human life that uh, <laughs> was sacrifices for funerals? Of course, remember, uh, if you've seen the Qin Shi Huangdi, the, the terracotta soldiers, you know, I'm, that's actually a replacement, right? I mean, uh, he was replacing his whole army with terracotta figures. Um, so, you know, by Confucius's time, it, things had been quieted down. There wasn't quite so much human sacrifice, certainly in Confucius's time. But uh, it, it still did go on, and you, you'd expect there would be some mention of this or more of it, um, some outrage, but nope. Uh, and this may be a sign of a kind of a holdover of an aristocratic sensibility in Confucianism. Uh, that, that kind of thing shows up now and then in Confucian writings, I submit. So no one gets to be a perfect sage, I guess, uh, yeah, because morals are always changing. So anyway, we'll let that go for the moment. 
um, the slaughter of innocent people to be buried with wealthy people. But anyway, um, so but from the material culture and tombs, we have a picture of how status and ritual were linked in the Zhou dynasty. We can actually piece together the Zhou dynasty ritual system that Confucius promoted, the ritual system of the Western Zhou. And I'll try to make the connection to benevolence. It's kind of hard after we've been talking about human sacrifice, but here we go. Now, if you remember, I've already challenged the idea that references to ritual in the LX are not from the original Confucian paradigm, uh, but rather that these are textual interpolations put in by followers of Shunzi, so not part of the original LX that Brooks and Brooks claim to have uncovered. Uh, Slingerland points out, and it's the same Slingerland that I just mentioned, he points out that there are no references to the kinds of discussions of human nature, or xin, it's the word for heart, uh, seen in the Mencius and the Shunzi texts, and there would have been if these later folks were involved in the construction of the Analects, he argues, and I think that's a very strong argument. Um, so it makes better sense to see the Analects as completed before the early 4th century BC. So ritual is in, and it is central. And the Zhou dynasty funeral, funeral practices, the tombs, uh, that we've looked into have left behind solid material evidence of this. Uh, I think inescapable evidence, and it's evidence of how ritual was used in their system of government. And um, so this is, you know, it's a big deal. The the Zhou rulers had figured out a way of running their society with ritual, and so. It really was there, and we can see this in the tombs, and Confucius is indeed referring to just this sort of thing. And so basically, here's how it worked. Important people did sacrifices uh, um, at altars, not so much human sacrifice, but they did sacrifices, which were religious ceremonies, to be sure, uh, but they were also big dinners. They were parties. And the Joe had strict rules on what kinds of accoutrements could be used by people at different levels of status. So, for instance, if you were a bigwig, you would be allowed to have a matching set of seven ding pots for stewing meat. If you were a minor player, you could maybe have one or a few ding pots. And there were lots of similar, similar regulations, apparently, for all sorts of things, things like rows of dancers. And so here's the big concept. The whole system was set up to prevent raw, destabilizing, barbaric struggles for power. And one thing we know from Western anthropologists and sociologists who study ritual is that status is demonstrated through your place in ritual activities. People who have a central role in rituals have lots of power. Those at the margins do not. So, for instance, if you're a powerful person, an influential person at your local Presbyterian church, then you sit up front. The person in the back pew is probably a nobody. So your place in rituals determines your power. And that's basically the logic that the Joe seems to have taken advantage of. And in this episode's opening story, the drunk in the Angry Birds t-shirt 
uh, is actually removed from the f- funeral ceremony. I mean, how far out to the margins of this ritual can you get when you're physically removed from the ritual, right? So what the Joe dynasty put together was a system that linked a person's status in government with their place in the ritual order. You know, this is actually similar to Thanksgiving dinners in many families today. There's usually a matriarch who has the largest house and the best china and silverware and who can then serve as the person who provides the meeting place for the Thanksgiving. They're at the center of that ritual, therefore. It's a power thing. And this is how females in our culture work out their power struggles. And it's very interesting. And can you believe that there were once sociologists who believed that women in traditional culture do not have power struggles the way that men do? It's absolutely hilarious. Of course they do. Another similar pattern is people having enormous houses for entertaining. Who the hell would want the trouble of an enormous estate? It's like having an extra job or something. If, if it weren't for building connections and power, that's what you have that estate for. In Hollywood, for instance, if you're going to make it as a producer, if you want to achieve fame, or if you want to go into politics... You need to throw big catered parties, big ones with, with a band, lots of young women, a bar, all that kind of thing. So what the Joe did, what they came up with, and it's brilliant, was a way of limiting the potential for power struggles by systematizing religious sacrifices to ancestors together with political office and parties, big dinner gatherings with roasted meats and wine, lots of wine at first, actually, although that got kind of later, it got out of hand. They were systemizing such things together into the status system and regulating everything through that. And all cultures do some of this, But what's different about the Joe is they did it intentionally. They knew what they were doing. They came up with a complete system. It was religion, entertainment, etiquette, family, power, and politics, other things I haven't thought of yet, but all regulated within a single ritual system. And as we'll see in later episodes, the implications for individuals who live out their lives within that system, the implications for the individuals are actually really profound. There are insights that attend this conception of human life, uh, the, and these insights can be brought to bear on the lives of individuals, too. So it's actually really brilliant. In a modern army, we regulate status with fixed ranks, with bars on sleeves, right? In families, we have house size and antiques and chinaware and so on. We have the size of the golf course and how much it costs and on and on and on. And all of this stuff gets bound up 
with the social order in these social milieus. In the United States, we often try and pretend that we're all equal and so much so that we sometimes hide status. Status can be hidden sometimes or at least hidden to children and the naive. But status is everywhere. It's everywhere. People have different levels of power and they show it one way or another. Pierre Bourdieu, for instance, the French social scientist, famously made the connection between social status markers, status symbols, things like fancy clothes, a taste for the opera, expensive cars, status symbols, right? A connection between that and violence. Bourdieu is famous for this. According to him and his researchers and all of their findings, for instance, wearing a tie or buying a home on the right side of the tracks, was for Bourdieu participation in an act of, quote, symbolic violence, end quote, symbolic violence. What's what's going on here? The idea is that rather than than commit actual violence, the symbolic display of power does the trick. It's much like an animal showing its fangs or fluffing its feathers to look menacing. And for people on the political left, for progressives, for people like Bourdieu, symbolic violence is a sinister thing. It's scary. It's a sneaky way of maintaining inequality and therefore of maintaining oppression. So, okay. But, and it's a big but. This is a big one. From a Confucian perspective, from the perspective of someone writing in the ancient world, from the perspective of someone living through the decline of the Zhou and experiencing the increasing war and the turmoil of the spring and autumn period, and especially after that, the warring states period, if you're living through all of that, symbolic violence wouldn't look too bad, not from that perspective. Symbolic violence is a hell of a lot better than real violence. Now, one thing. Uh, Confucius was wrong about the origins of this system. He thought it was virtually all the work of Zhou Gong, the Duke of Zhou, Zhou Gong, who was his hero. But one thing we've learned about from all the archaeology on tombs, and, and this is very recent, this is within the past few decades, is that Joe Ritual, the Joe Ritual system, evolved over time. It evolved. And there was a major ritual reform period in the Western Joe around the year 850 BC. And it wasn't by one of the more likable Joe leaders. Uh, check out the work of Lothar von uh, Falkenhausen, and Jessica Rawson, uh, for details, if you're interested in this stuff, Jessica Rawson. Um, it's, this has actually been a, a major breakthrough. There are tiny hints of this in the ancient Chinese literature, but no one quite knew the extent of it. No one knew. Uh, and it's a finding that came almost entirely, or I would say entirely, from the analysis of Joe material culture from tombs. And this helps us better understand how the Joe ritual system emerged. So Confucius is kind of wrong about the origins. He didn't understand the importance of this, uh, apparently, of this uh, 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 ritual um, upgrade that happened in 850 BC. But back to our story. If you remember, 
the granddaughter in the Angry Birds t-shirt has not met the expectations for clothing or decorum uh, or anything, really, uh, for funerals. And so she's met with stern disapprobation. She is not welcome. She is not fully a member of the group, at least at that time. She threatens to disrupt the funeral. It's as it's, it's almost as if she were doing one of Garfinkel's disruption experiments with the same result of showing how the social order, the ritual order, can be very fragile. Now, in this story, we have uh, a ritual, the funeral, but we also have what I've been calling benevolence, or ren in Chinese. It's romanized, by the way, as R-E-N, ren. I'm calling it benevolence. It's that spirit of benevolence that the daughter is disrupting. It's that spirit of benevolence that the granddaughter is disrupting. And it's a kind of kindness, the spirit, but it's not merely kindness. It's kind of an emotion, but there's no need for overt emotion, really, at least not by everyone. Funerals call forth respect, and it's a kind of benevolence, and that, that feeling that the event must be respected. Most people know better than to wear an Angry Birds t-shirt and flip-flops to a funeral. And when we say most people know better, we are referring, aren't we, to a kind of pro-social behavior. That is run. That is benevolence. That special sort of goodness that is bound up with things like our respectfulness at a funeral. Perhaps you know what I mean. It's a kind of pro-social orientation or attitude, a sort of benevolence, that's what I'm calling. Uh, and we really don't have a word for this thing in English, so I am tempted to just call it ren. Benevolence can take other forms. At a wedding held on, in a lovely summer garden, there would likely be an expectation of, of light, joyful spirits among the people there. Uh, exactly the opposite of the shared sorrow that's expected at a funeral or the kind of respectfulness there. And yet the shared joy would also be pro-social. It would be benevolent to participate in that. And just as we have a rehash of our cherished values in funeral orations, so too at weddings. Do we, you know, it's the same thing. We, we come face to face with aspects of a shared family ethic, a map of how we ought to behave. So at weddings and funerals, we have ritual, quite obviously, and we have the occasion for a shared orientation to values and ethical or moral ideas. And we have this something else, this something else that's going on that's both social and yet felt as an emotion or affect in individuals. It's a kind of deep-level kindness or benevolence again, uh, it, that it's more or less felt by the participants, or at least we could say that participants are supposed to feel it or at least respect the feeling of it. I'm tempted to call it love, but it's not really, so we'll call it benevolence. And for Confucian thinkers... This benevolence, this ren, this effervescence, this upwelling, this thing that is somewhere between emotion and expectations for behavior is enormously important. For Ruists, this is the thing, the very thing 
that determines whether a society is flourishing or falling apart. And so when Confucius complains about the G family with its eight rows of dancers in the courtyard, he's not being trivial at all. Not at all. He's pointing out that the ritual system that had been developed by the Zhou rulers, the system that had worked for centuries, was being perverted. The whole point had been to prevent brutal struggles for power of the sort that were beginning to emerge that had already emerged in Confucius's time and they continued to get worse. The whole point had been to prevent that kind of stuff by smoothing the social system, the social order, with effective ritual practices. That was the whole point of the system. Ritual, not raw power, was supposed to determine the social system. The G family was, for Confucius, the poster child, the perfect example of what was wrong with the world in his day. This, for Confucius, was the form that barbarism took, the reason for increasing war and the chaos of that time. So listen again to this amazing passage. It's so short, and yet it is so full of meaning. Confucius spoke of the Ji family, eight rows of dancers in the courtyard. If this can be endured, what cannot be endured. In this episode, I started with an example of someone who did not fit into a funeral. Then we discussed uh, what has been learned about the Zhou dynasty system of ritual that Confucius promoted with its gradations of power symbols, things like sets of ding pots and who is qualified to use them or not. And we know this from the study of tombs because people were buried with their ding pots. And I compared this to who has a set of good china and so who gets to hold the Thanksgiving party each year, that kind of thing. And I showed how the Confucian system, which is really mostly the Zhou system, is intended to prevent barbarian struggles for power. So it's much like a system of symbolic violence but it was seen as a very positive thing in a way that the followers of Bourdieu would probably never expect. And I hope at this point, you've got a sense of how ritual and benevolence work together in the Confucian paradigm. But next time, I'd like to get around to a Confucian topic that most Chinese people see as very central to Confucianism, filial piety respecting parents. We'll do that for an episode or two. You know, if you stop a Chinese person on the street and ask them about Confucianism, they're likely to go on and on about filial piety, which is misleading in a way, but that's the popular conception, so I better get to it quick, and I will next time. And we'll start off with a story of a hero of filial piety, and it's an infamous story that really pushes the issue, so please join us for that. Till then, express kindness, develop your mind, avoid all depravity, 
and serve the common good. I'm Andy Abel. Thank you for listening.